You're an expert in your field. All your training has pointed you to do research in a foreign land far from home. Once there, you get right to work. And everything is going as planned until, suddenly, it's not. And the ancient past and present collide hard. What do you do? Hundreds of American researchers participate in exchange programs around the world every year, changing their lives and the way that we see the world. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. When I started going to Peruvian gyms, I was a little nervous. Like I thought it might be a lot of men lifting weights, or I didn't really know what it would be like. And then when I started going in, I realized it was a gym scene that you might otherwise expect. A lot of middle-aged ladies, you know, trying not to let their figures go entirely. And one of the things that I grew to really enjoy doing at the gym near my house was step aerobics, which sounds familiar. And it was basically familiar. There are a few differences. So in the United States, you have a step that's made out of rubber and it's not supposed to be slippery and it's supposed to be safe. And in this class, we had homemade wooden steps that were super slippery and would slide out from people all of the time. And people were always falling down. It was just part of the fun. Um, a lot of women would wear these like sweatsuits that seemed to be made out of marathon blankets, those things that are supposed to keep people warm, but they said that, you know, it's helping them sweat, helping them lose weight. And then one of the problems that I always had is I would go into the class, I'd put my step down, and then the other women would put their step down very close to me. What was happening is that even though I'm only 5'4", I'm at least six inches taller than most of the other women who were taking that class. And they would underestimate like how far I was going to kick. And so I'd start the class and say, hey, you know, can you scoot your step over a little? And they would sort of say like, no, you know, there's plenty of room. And then we'd start the class and inevitably I would be almost kicking them and our steps would be sliding out. And someone's in this like metallic gym suit. And I don't know, it was just a lot of fun and a, a great way to spend a little time. I would always recommend going to foreign gyms. It's never boring. <laughs> this week, Peruvian step aerobics, excavating in an ancient village, and BYOGP, which of course means bring your own guinea pig to the party. On this episode, a journey from Missouri to Peru to discover that human relationships transcend everything else. It's 2233. We operate under a presidential mandate which says that we report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. That's what we call cultural exchange. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that it was possible to create... Oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. My name is Allison Davis. I am from Sullivan, Missouri. I did a Fulbright exchange to Peru uh, in Cusco in the years 2006 and 2007. When I was planning to go to Peru and thinking about where I was going to live, it seemed natural for me to ask my good friend if I could rent an apartment that she was planning to build in her house. 
We talked a lot. She promised that it was done. But when I arrived at Cusco and I went to her house, I saw that, yes, there were walls. Uh, yes, there were windows. But when I went into the apartment, there were no floors. There was no plumbing. Um, there were no appliances. There were no interior doors. In other words, the apartment itself was just a shell. And so I ended up for the first couple of weeks of my Fulbright sleeping on her couch in the, the three-bedroom apartment that her four-member family was also living in. And one of the things I really remember is that they didn't use a shower. Instead, they had a bathroom. Um, it had running water. There was a sink. There was a toilet. But you would just boil a little water on Sunday. And that's the day you would bathe out of a bucket. And then you would go on with the week. Um, at first, that was hard. But I ended up getting used to it as I stayed there for about the first month of my Fulbright. Then when I finally moved into the apartment, of course, we didn't always have running water. And at that point, I didn't really care if I was showering or, or not. It didn't make that much of a difference. I had learned to bathe over you know, the course of the week in the sink. And that was my first taste of this realization of how many things that I had in my daily life I really didn't need. Uh, I never really had consistent running water. I realized I really didn't need that. And that experience has really affected my life since then because I still don't really care if I have running water. <laughs> I still don't really buy disposable things like plastic bags and paper towels. I just don't need them. And so I think that's uh, an experience that's changed the way that I live my life. My project as a Fulbrighter was to do the archaeological excavations, the field work that I needed to do in order to write my dissertation when I got back to the United States. I went to a rural community where I had identified there was a 2,000-year-old village that I wanted to dig up to answer my research questions. And I went into the community and recruited laborers. My first season, uh, I had those field workers. I was also working with uh, college-educated archaeologists who lived in the city of Cusco and had gone to the university there. And we all went out and started digging. And my plan was to dig up a village to see what people's houses were like, to see what their trash was like, to try to imagine what daily life was like in this place 2,000 years ago. But immediately when we started digging, we began to find uh, human burials. It was never my plan to excavate human burials, so this was concerning to me. I had personal ethical challenges with it. One of the concerns that I had was that the workers who lived in this community, you know, these people that we were, whose graves we were going to be excavating are in some sense their ancestors. I was concerned that they wouldn't want to do that excavation, that they would have a, a problem, an ethical problem or moral problem with it. I asked my archaeologist friends who are, are city people, you know, educated in the city, and they would say, oh, Peru is different. No one minds if you dig up human burials. We do it all the time. Human bodies circulate. It's fine. It's no big deal. We just consider it archaeological material like anything else. And so with that in mind, I, I asked my field workers, is this going to bother you uh, to dig up human burials? And they 
they all said, no, 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 no. You know, we are not old fashioned. We're not superstitious. We're modern people. We don't have any problem with any of this. And so over the course of that first excavation season, I think we dug the burials of about 16 individuals. And I learned a lot of really interesting things. I learned that there is a practice of mummification 2,000 years before the Inca, and the Inca are really famous for using mummies as a way to um, let someone's children inherit their land after they pass on. As long as they're still around as a mummy, they keep their land. Um, And so that was really interesting for me intellectually. And so I finished that season feeling pretty good. I learned a lot from digging the human burials. No one seemed to mind that we were doing it. And then I returned the next year to do a second excavation uh, season in a slightly different part of the site. I had some field workers return from the first time. I had some new field workers. And as we started digging, we began to find human burials again. And I was, I didn't even ask this time, does it bother anyone, you know, anything like that. But as time went on, some uh, workers that I had known for longer said, you know, Allison, I don't want to keep digging these burials. Uh, Can you let me dig in a different part of the site? And I said, oh, uh, why? And it, it turns out that the conversations that the workers had been having amongst themselves about what the effect I was digging, what the effect was of digging those burials, I had I had no idea because we didn't know each other. There wasn't a lot of trust, and so he started to tell me, "Well, uh, when you dig burials, it's likely to give you arthritis. When you dig burials, uh, a person can get very bad nightmares. When you dig burials, uh, maybe the best one is you can grow a sixth finger, you know? So it's all these dramatic things that could happen to you. Or people say that, you know, we're digging these burials and it's causing trouble in the community. And and on and, and on, there are a lot of different examples. You know, people who I didn't know who I was going to pay were willing to tell me what they thought I wanted to hear. And so I think one of the lessons for for archaeologists is that you need to make sure you're listening. You need to make sure you have good enough personal relationships with people that they'll they'll be honest with you, but that the only way to to have those relationships is to do this you know, longer term research, to know people for longer, to build just the normal human relationships that people have. And I think that's a lesson that I've taken into my normal life. If you ask a stranger a question, they might not tell you the truth. If you ask them a year later when they're your friend, you're probably going to find out what they've been thinking all along. One of the advantages to doing archaeology in the context of a Fulbright exchange is that you're you're there for the long haul. Uh, in science, unfortunately, the long haul is frequently up to a year. When you have really lived and worked in a place for a year or longer, you recognize that there's that conversation at home, uh, the science conversation. 
And then there's the community that you're in and the conversation that that's there and they, the concerns that they have. And I think doing a longer exchange helps balance how you weigh those two concerns. One of the best things about doing archaeology uh, generally, but I think especially about doing it in the highlands of Peru in, in the context of a small village, is that when you're finally at the end of the excavation season, you've reached bedrock in every pit that you've dug. There's no more cultural stuff to find. You're ready to fill it all back in with dirt. You finally get a chance for everyone to just get together and have an end-of-season party. I was a foreigner. I lived in the city. I could go to the grocery store. Um, you know, they were mostly subsistence farms, farmers. They had mostly things that they grew themselves and then some limited things they could get through exchange or going to the market every once in a while. So I was definitely going to be the one that brought the beer. I was definitely going to be the one who brought the cheese. Um, I, you know, I was bringing those kinds of things that had to come from the store. But the women, especially who were excavating with me, said, we'll do the cooking. Don't worry. You all just have to bring um, certain foods. So the people who are growing potatoes, which was most people, you know, we'll bring potatoes and then someone else was going to bring the corn and on and on. And then we got to the end of the discussion and they said, and everyone will just bring their own guinea pig. And everyone sort of agreed and started nodding. And I was sitting there and I was like, guys, you know, I, I don't have my own guinea pig. And people just looked at me like they were shocked that I didn't have a guinea pig. And of course, they wanted the guinea pigs because we were going to eat them. Guinea pig is just a really popular party food around Cusco. When you're really going to celebrate, do it up big, it's time to cook the guinea pigs. Um, and the plan that the women had was that everyone would bring their own guinea pig. Um, they would start out in the morning early. They would singe off the hair. They would, you know, uh, cut them, get them ready, lay them in the sun so they could dry out a little bit before they roasted. And then they were going to take the intestines and make these little tiny sausages filled with potatoes, which are actually really delicious and, you know, on and on and on. But but that just depended on everyone bringing their own guinea pig. was sort of shocked because I was the only foreigner there. They seemed to recognize that in a lot of ways. They'd make jokes about what languages we were talking, you know, and, we, you know, what it was like where I lived. But it didn't seem to occur to them that I was the only one who wasn't keeping a guinea pig in my kitchen ready to be eaten at any time. So people were very worried. They're like, oh, well, I don't have an extra. I can't give you an extra. No one had an extra guinea pig for me. Eventually, one of the workers did volunteer the guinea pig. But it was just one of these interesting moments where, you know, although you look at each other and they, they know you're different, it's surprising what people assume is universal until it's revealed in that kind of, kind of moment when you're, everyone's pitching in the same thing and, and trying to divide tasks.
A lot of uh, Americans who travel to Peru, they want to try guinea pig because it just seems so strange or exciting that it's something that you eat. And when you order it in a restaurant, you get just this guinea pig either on a tiny little spit like a pig and it's been you know twirled around and roasted or you get it cut open and flattened like a bearskin rug and then breaded and fried. And they just put it on a plate with a potato and and that's it. And the experience of eating it in that context, people say, oh my gosh, it has so many bones. It's so greasy. This taste is so strong. And they walk away thinking that was not a delicious food. That is not a food that I need to have any other time. But if you're eating guinea pig in the context of a, you know, a party in a, a small town, what you're really doing is eating a lot of potatoes, like dozens of potatoes per person. And potatoes are really dry. And so when you eat five really dry potatoes and then you take a bite of really greasy guinea pig, it's just, it's a relief, but it's just delicious. You know, it makes the potatoes go down better. It makes everything taste better. And it's really important to have because in my experience, when I would eat with um, Peruvians in these small towns, People would not drink while they were eating, and that's really hard for Americans not to drink any liquids while they were eating. And people would only drink if someone said, you know, salud or cheers, and then everyone drank at the same time. So if you're a foreigner and you're thirsty and you you raise your glass to drink while everyone's talking, it's really disruptive and everyone will stop talking and sort of panic and look around for their drink and then grab it and drink it and it disturbs the whole meal. And so you learn over time to try to quit drinking, but it's so hard that that guinea pig really provides this like lubricant to get all the potatoes down, even the sausages our intestines just stuffed with potatoes. So, you know, there's just like a lot of dry food and the guinea pig fat is delicious in that context. Christopher Wurst, director of The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. 2233 takes its name from Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. In this episode... Allison Davis shared her experiences as an archaeologist on an ECA Fulbright Research Scholarship in Cusco, Peru, where she led the excavation of a 2,000-year-old village. Fulbright scholars do research in more than 160 countries around the world. For more about ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's ECA. C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Special thanks this week to Allison for sharing her stories and promising me some guinea pig recipes. I did the interview with Allison and edited this episode. The featured music during Allison's segment was Cuando Lora Mi Guitarra by Oscar Aviles, 
An Indian Summer by Ruby Braff and his men. At the top of each episode, you hear Sebastian by How the Night Came, and at the end of every episode, you hear Two Pianos by Tagirius. Until next time.